do when we get to any Bible passage is to try and understand where it fits within its uh, historical framework. What's the context this passage finds itself in? And unless we understand this, unless we understand where in God's story uh, this passage takes place, we will miss the message that, um, that is being sent to the people and we will never understand how this is supposed to apply to us. One of the key beliefs we have as, as pastors, as people of the, uh, of the Word, is that every passage in Scripture ultimately points to Jesus. Every passage in Scripture either looks forward to Jesus' coming uh, on the cross or it looks back to the event of His, of his uh, death and resurrection. When you read a New Testament letter, it's written to people who now need to live according to the uh, fact that Jesus has died and has saved them on the cross. When you read an Old Testament passage like this one, it's looking forward to the day of the promised Messiah that would one day come. And Ezekiel fits in this in uh, Israel's history in exile. So where do we find uh, where, where do we find Ezekiel? Verse 1, it says, In the thirteenth year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal. So Ezekiel finds himself here in exile. And we have to understand what what the exile is, what it was there for, why it happened. You see, the book of Ezekiel opens with these exiles living in Babylon. Why were God's people in exile? Why were they here in Babylon? Because God was disciplining them as a nation, for their sin. You see, for centuries, Israel had turned from God, despite being warned over and over that their continued rejection, their continued um, uh, disobedience to Him would lead to their disaster. You see, no one in Israel was innocent. This is not an arbitrary punishment. We read, for example, in 2 Kings 24, that God had used Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Israel precisely because... They had rebelled against Him. They had done what is evil in God's sight. They had turned their backs on Him, uh, uh, on the God who had brought them up out of Egypt and established Him as His own people, as His own treasured possession. And so to bring their hearts back to Him, to fix their hearts, He actually allows them and has them carried off into exile. Israel was going to be in Babylon for 70 years. There would be Israelites who would die there. There would be Israelite children who would be born there. Parents would have to explain to their kids, we are here in exile because we have disobeyed God. We had turned our backs on Him. And this is His way of bringing us back. You see, friends, the the sin of of our parents sometimes cause us to bear the consequences. The sin might be the parents' sin, but the whole community, including the children, might have to bear the consequences. This is what happened for Israel. And it was not a great time. The the people believed that God lived in His temple, that He lived there in Zion. And so in exile, the whole nation of Israel was cut off from God, they thought. They had no way to offer sacrifices. They, They couldn't atone for their sin. They felt like they were cut off from God and from His presence. And it was a devastating time for them. And we can hear how they felt. We can hear the depression they had in Psalm 137. It reads like this, By the waters of Babylon, where we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, 
On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us a song. Our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Incidentally, this is now my son's favorite song, uh, Boney M's rendition of The Rivers of Babylon. Uh, he asks me to sing it, which I am not going to do now. But being carried off into, uh, into exile was a devastating blow for Israel. My friends, the reality is that we can find ourselves in exile circumstances. We can find ourselves in places where it feels as if we are cut off from God, cut off from His presence, where we are, in a sense, in the land of discipline. Ezekiel forces us to remember that God's discipline is always deserved. It is never arbitrary. When we have to bear the consequences of our sin and our actions, it is not because God has abandoned us. He is not punishing us. Rather, His discipline is a gift to us. It is, in a way, a mercy. It is a means of grace to us. It is a way for God to bring about our repentance, to bring about the deep heart change that He wants in us. You know, friends, if we are honest with ourselves, what we would want is a quick punishment to get right back on track. But God often doesn't work that way. He takes enough time to get the job done. You know, when Israel was led out of Egypt, uh, the distance they had to travel to get to the promised land should take them about two weeks if they traveled in a straight line. But because of their sin, because of their unbelief, God led them through the desert for 40 years. Do you see the point? It only took God one night to save Israel out of Egypt, but it took all of 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. In the same way, it only took Jesus one day to die on the cross and save us from our sin. But sometimes it takes a long time for the sin that caused our current life circumstances to get out of us. One of the most confronting things about being one of God's people is that He is not satisfied with anything less than our perfection. Sometimes that means that He loves us enough let us bear the consequences of our sin until our hearts are changed. You know, there are some in the, in the Christian world, well-meaning Christian people, who want to tell us that God doesn't want you to go through suffering. God would never want you to be sick or go through a hard time. If you simply had enough faith, you would be happy. You would be joyful. These people need to read Ezekiel. They need to read the New Testament letters. They need to read books like Job in the Bible. You see, God's purpose for our life is so much greater than our comfort and our happiness. He is far more interested in our perfection as His children than He is in our comfort. He cares for us too much. He loves us too much to leave us wallowing in our sin. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross so that you could be left imperfect by God. Yes, it's true. He meets you wherever you are, but He doesn't expect you to stay where you are. 
Jesus died on the cross so that we could know that God is not punishing us, but He is disciplining us to make us perfect, to make us more like Christ as a, as a father who disciplines the children He loves. But how do we know? How do we know that this exile was not a punishment against Israel? Well, in Jeremiah 24, we read about God's heart for the exile. This is what God says to His people who are being disciplined. From verse 6, He says, I will keep my eyes on them for their good, and I will return them to this land. I will build them up and not demolish them. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, because they will return to me with all their heart. Friend, if you are in the land of discipline, if you are going through suffering because of your sin, take heart. You are not there because God is punishing you. You are there because God is committed to you. You are in the land of discipline so that you can have a heart that knows Him. You are there so that you can be one of His people. God is so committed to you that He will not spare you His discipline. He is so committed to you that He wants you to return to Him with your whole heart. God will not give up on you, even when you're just sorry that you got caught. No, He will work on you until you are sorry that you sinned in the first place. He will work on, on you not just so that you follow the rules to be a good little Christian. He will work on you until your heart is so focused on Him that you do the right things simply because that is who you are. And when we understand discipline like this, we finally get to see how gracious God truly is. He loves us enough to discipline us. This is a way for Him to be gracious to us. Okay, so that's a ver verse 1. Only 27 to go. I hope you've cleared out your schedule for today uh, because we're almost at 11 o'clock. So, yeah, you'll be right. <laughs> the second and perhaps more encouraging thing this morning is that during our exile, God never leaves our side. From verse 4, he said, And as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came up out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of fire, as if gleaming metal. Now, I could read all the way to verse 24. I'm not going to do that. But we have to understand that God here comes from the north. Now, in Israel, the enemies always came from the north. The original hearers would have understood that God isn't coming to judge Babylon for their wicked deed of carrying Israel off into captivity. No, God is coming to judge the sin of His people. The reckoning has come. God has not come to judge the Babylonians. He has come to sort out His people. And they knew that it was a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see, we can so often forget that God is absolutely holy. We can have such a low opinion of ourselves and the seriousness of our sin that we think, God doesn't really care all that much. I'm not such a bad person. I occasionally, only occasionally, gossip. Only sometimes do the wrong thing. I make business dealings and choices that are only occasionally a bit dodgy, but that's okay, because everyone does it. What verse 4 tells us is that God not only cares for our sin, He actively sets Himself against it. He is the enemy of it. He comes from the north as the enemy who wants to utterly destroy sin. And what is God like? 
According to Ezekiel, he is an awesome warrior God who rides on this heavenly chariot. Lightning flashes all around. There are these, these four cherubim, these creatures of power and might. And whenever cherubim are mentioned in the Bible, they are the guardians of God's holiness. And we tend to have this idea that cherubs are cute little babies, you know, that have wings that sell us chocolates, that shoot people with love arrows, and sometimes are used to sell us toilet paper. But that's just not the picture we have in Scripture. Cherubs are God's honor guard. They are these frightful creatures with faces turning each way and they are there to protect God's holiness. And because God is absolutely holy, He comes to judge. He comes actually to destroy the sin of His people. And He comes as this warrior king with lightning flashing back and forth. He shines like amber. There's this fire that encloses the chariot that God sits on. And Scripture often describes God as a consuming fire. He comes to burn up the impurities of His people. And it is this image of God that inspired preachers like Jonathan Edwards to write uh, sermons like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Friends, we must never assume that God views our sin lightly. He is absolutely holy and He will brook no presence of sin that's the picture we get. But while that is true, we have to remember that God is here. He's here with His people in exile. It is true that God will not brook their sin, but He is right there with them in Babylon. He has sent them to Babylon to be disciplined. He deals with their sin as an all-consuming fire, but He is there with His people. He does not abandon them. Even though the temple is in Jerusalem, even though uh, every way that the people of Israel thought they had to have access to God uh, was, was taken away from them, He does not leave them there alone. He does not leave Ezekiel sitting there as a priest with nothing to do because there's no temple. He is right there with His people at the Kibar Canal. And how is this possible? How could be God be so opposed to sin and yet be so present with His people in their discipline and in their land of sin? Only because of Christ. Only because of what Jesus did on the cross, where He took God's wrath against sin on Himself. You see, God is there in all His fiery blaze in Babylon, but His people are not consumed, they are transformed. They are not destroyed, they are redeemed. And we get a hint of this in verse 28, which describes God's radiance like a rainbow. The rainbow was meant to re uh, remind us of God's promise after the flood that He will not wipe the world out with a flood. It is a promise that reminds the people in Israel that they will not be wiped out even though He is there. Once God's discipline has worked its purpose out, they will be returned to Israel as a new people whose hearts are turned back to God. And this is only possible because Jesus died on the cross, was consumed by God's wrath. He bore God's fiery punishment for sin so that we didn't have to. He was exiled not just out of Israel, not just away from the temple, not just cut off from the feeling of God's presence, but forsaken by God Himself in the worst possible exile there is. He was completely cut off from God so that God's people would not be cut off. And so friends, take heart. 
God is not only in control of your, of your discipline, He's present with you in it. He does not abandon us to the valley of the shadow of death. He walks with us as we go through it. He is there in Babylon. And in Babylon, God teaches us to love Him properly. And sometimes it takes a Babylon experience to bring us back to Him. But He's there with us as we walk through it. Okay, so we've seen how God's discipline is God's means of grace to us. And we've seen how God's presence goes with us in discipline. I want to look lastly just at our response to God's presence. From verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads there was a likeness of a throne, and in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And upward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around it. And downward, from what had been the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud uh, on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard a voice of one speaking. I want to just focus briefly on the language Ezekiel uses here. There was this likeness of a throne, like sapphire, and above the likeness, a likeness of human appearance, etc., etc. It had the appearance of, the likeness of, it was such like. Is it a complete loss for words here? He does not know how to describe what he is seeing and what it is like experiencing God. He can't even find the words. If he was the world's best poet, he would fail to describe what this was like. If he was the best writer who ever lived, God would still defy his words. And so as he fumbles for these words, he falls down on his face. When he sees God, he falls down on his face. He cannot behold God's glory and stand before him. Friends, this is a really helpful reminder for us. It is very common today to think of closeness with God as a, as a kind of friendly banter, a kind of brotherliness when we consider God. When we think, we think that this is the way it should be, when we do that, we've actually lost the sense of awe for a holy God. We have forgotten that God is the warrior king who comes riding on this heavenly chariot to slay his enemies. And we have replaced this view of God with a kind of Jesus is my homeboy, best friend kind of idea. And he sort of dotes on me. Our passage today challenges that view of God. One of the commentators puts it this way in his commentary. He says, the least surprising component of this entire vision is Ezekiel's reaction. Ezekiel says, when I saw it, I fa fell face down. Well, no doubt. Isaiah, Peter, James, John, Paul all had similar reactions when they were allowed to see just a glimmer of God's glory. The question is not why so many people in the Bible fell on the ground in the presence of the Lord, but why there seems to be so little of it today. Of all the feelings Ezekiel had in the first chapter, one of them is not that Jesus is my homeboy. Ezekiel's new knowledge of God did not make him more, feel more casual about God at all. He was awed by this vision of God. And the casual happiness with which we often regard as the uh, which we often regard as the height of spiritual intimacy with God is actually never pictured in the Bible. Every vision of God in the Bible is awesome 
and inspires reverence. And when you look at the people that experience them, they all fall face down on their face. Friends, when we see God in His glory, we fall on our knees. When we see His face, we hide our own. If we have fallen into today's trap of of having this lax attitude towards God, we need to recapture this vision of who God is, how He rides His heavenly chariot, how He's come to slay our sin, and how He does so through sacrificing Himself on the cross. When that is the vision of God in our minds, we serve Him with the deepest of love, the greatest respect, and actually the most wonderful freedom. So are passages like this, which are so confusing, worth reading today? Only if we want to capture glimmer of God as He reveals Himself in His splendor. It is my prayer for you today that you may be captured by this greatness and this glory of God, so that you may be free to serve Him. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to see a glimmer of you as you reveal yourself in this book of Ezekiel. Lord, what a privilege it is to see you in that way. We pray that you will plant that vision of you deep in our hearts, that you will help us to see you as you truly are, as a God of glory who brooks no injustice. Help us to live out of that reality. Lord, we pray that you forgive us where we have become lax in our attitude towards you, where Uh, We have replaced you with, I guess, a paltry vision of who you really are. We pray that you will forgive us for that and rekindle in us an awe and a reverence for who you are. Lord, thank you that you walk with us in the difficult times in our life. Thank you that you do not abandon us, but that you care enough for us to uh, change us through our experiences. And Lord... As we suffer, we thank you that you shape us into the likeness of your Son. We thank you for these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.